This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and I am excited to be here in, in remote studio with uh, with Eve Zucker. Hi, Eve. Hi. Yeah, um, the uh, the uh, COVID has uh, has prevented you from from joining us in person. We were going to we were going to hazard an actual socially distant event on our campus and uh, um you cho- were you at the were you at the SCOTUS event? How did you get? Did you get? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't. I don't have. I don't have. I don't have okay. COVID. I, just, just for the record, the uh, yeah. I just got a, a terrible, you know, your your typical fall cold. Um, yeah. So it didn't seem like a good idea making the journey under those circumstances with you know the ramp up in the yeah 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 in the cases of COVID. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're good. yeah, you're like as you mentioned, your 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 fellow passengers would have probably even if you're. <laughs> safe from the COVID, they probably would have stressed them out. Um, so we're, we're excited to have you here for, for some reasons, but um, uh, especially your, uh, your sort of latest research from soldier to guardian spirit, transformation, enchantment, and um, reintegration. Um, uh, Eve, as for our listeners, is, a, is an anthropologist uh, affiliated at, at, at Yale and Columbia, um, is on um, uh, lots of boards and, and uh, sort of Cambodian studies um, outlets, and including Yale Genocide Studies, we'll talk about later. Um, uh, one, one of the books that, that I'm aware of, and we'll, and we'll mention a few others later, is, is Forest of Struggle, Moralities and Remembrance in Upland Cambodia with UH um, Press. And um, uh, Dr. Zucker, along with uh, folks like uh, Judy Ledgerwood and others, are interested in trying to understand um, post-conflict conflict Cambodia and how uh, sort of those uh, spiritual worlds get uh, reconstructed and reimagined in in, uh, in a in a new Cambodia. Is that, does that does that hit the mark right, or am I off? Yeah, no, you're you're right on the mark there. <laughs> well, um, so in in particular, uh, you gave it you gave an interesting. Um, discussion of of a particular a particular event and a particular site in in Cambodia um this this Yemao um monument that is has been reappropriated in in Anlong Vang and um we'll we'll talk about all these things but tell us a bit about um you know some of our listeners might not be familiar with with uh, sort of Cambodia in in the sort of the Khmer Rouge, Push Khmer Rouge. We don't have to run through the uh, Democratic Kampuchea, but um, give us a context for your research as you come to look at these statues in uh, this this uh, particular place in um, the Yemao statue in Anlong Bang. What, what what's going right. on in 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 Cambodia, um, and why is this area so potent? So um, so first of all, I just want to say that I that my research. Prior to this, uh, my earlier research was in in Kampong Spu province and dealing with some of the same questions of how do communities and Cambodian individuals and communities and society as a whole, how do you move on from uh, genocide and mass violence? And especially in cases where um, people still have to live with one another again. It's not a case where there was an invading force that came in and then they left and and, uh, this is very much, um, this is something that people deal with every single day. Um, right. And infamous auto, auto genocide that, that, that has to be, um, processed differently than maybe other, um, mass killings. Right. Yeah. And certainly in some of these areas, that's more the case than others. And, and my former field site was one of them and also places like Palin and, and, uh, and Long Vang, you know, are also very much those cases. It, kind of places because they're, they were former Khmer Rouge bases and as former Khmer Rouge bases and not just bases in a military sense, but bases as settlements really. Uh, that's where people lived and had their children and got married and did all the sort of normal things that people do and only they are doing that um, under a different political system, in this case, that of the Khmer Rouge. Um, 
So later, as these as the defections took place through the 90s, particularly the second half of the 90s, all, all the way through to 99, um, not only the, the, did the, the defections the, from um, the, the defections Khmer from the Khmerers, yeah, yeah, from the Khmerers army to the government. Um, so this impacted things quite a lot in the sense that not only did were people been able to leave these areas if they chose to move to other areas, which they didn't always do, but in some cases they did. Um, but also people from other parts of Cambodia moved into these areas. And then you see this really rapid change that happens in these areas because uh, especially areas along the border, there's the, you know, the Khmerers supported themselves through the illegal trade in timber and gems and, and, and other goods across the border. And now suddenly that's opened up. So you get people coming from other parts of Cambodia who are also trying to, you know, improve their lives and, and um, do better by economically by moving to these places and making a living uh, in one of these trades, or maybe in a trade of even like starting a restaurant there or a hotel or something else. So you have this influx of not foreigners, but, you know, it's their countrymen, but they're people coming with a different background than their own. And they're all coming to live together. And, um, and at the same time that, that there's these very sort of new ways of doing things being introduced again, you know, things like, um, you know, things within the capitalist system, which, you know, the Khmerers didn't live in a capitalist system. They lived in a, in a sort of socialist communist system. So, um, uh, that presents a very large, a lot, very large change and a lot of challenges because not only are you dealing with two communities that have different versions of the memory of the past, um, you also are dealing with people that have been living under two different ideologies coming together and um, living within the same community and their kids going to the same schools and um, you know, maybe they're going to then they're going to the same markets and things. So it's a really interesting period um, as that settles in. So that that's one of the things that really interests me about about those areas is uh, the sort of steps and these sort of little, you know, sometimes they could be even micro transformation, but there's a larger transformation taking place as people as society sort of reintegrates together after after really decades, you know, when you think about it. You know, yeah. the Civil War, which started in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, and then suddenly you're up to the, you know, 19, you know this doesn't end until 1999. So that's a long period of time um, not to sort of be living in the same sort of society doing the same kinds of things. So an, another maybe um, uh, point for our listeners is that is that uh, Anlong Vang, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but as the as the uh, Khmer Rouge are, are uh Largely defeated, but then retreat into um, Anlong Vang is one of the places that um, that is is a, is a last stronghold. Is that right for the yeah. for Democratic Kampuchea as they as they retreat and um, as they're driven out of um, the plains? Right, it's a very interesting place in that regard. Both physically, you know, the actual the fact that there's this, you know, the Dunkrek escarpment, this ridge, you know, that mountain that then backs up right up to the Thai border, you know, which is on the top mm -hmm. of that. And so it it's it makes it a very strategic site. And the fact with the border there that they can just, you know, there is escape across the border into, you know, you know, and that escape across the border and just the border being there makes it very fascinating because of course, you know, you know, Thailand is has its own system <laughs> over there. It's not that they're there it's not some neutral area it's you know it is thailand so um that makes it so so the contacts of people they're coming into contact with you know through these movements um is interesting as well and um yeah so really the last gasp really of um the Khmer Rouge in and long Vang is very interesting and as i mentioned in the talk you know i sort of started with the 1998 um election because it was a really pivotal moment I mean, when i when you think about it you yeah, had so set, set the stage okay so i i started that that part of the talk and i talked in, and i sort of went right into uh, a scene of the people who 
were the victims of a Khmer Rouge attack on election day um, being transported by helicopter from Anlong Bang to Siem Reap. The helicopter had left Siem Reap to pick those, um, those people up and deliver some supplies along the way. Um, and I, you know, I, myself and a partner, we were on that helicopter actually, wow. um, since <laughs> that's how I know the story. <laughs> was it, was it, it, what was the mood like? Is it, was it tense? Was it, what was, how, no, was it, like? it wasn't tense on the helicopter because, you know, people were happy, you know, the soldier that I mentioned in the story that had been holding the baby, you know, when, when Sam Reap came into view, he was smiling as he. Uh-huh. looked out the window. I, you know, they were relieved, I think, to be going to see him even, especially for the, those who are wounded to be able to get to a hospital. Um, so, you know, the, after what they had been through, you know, the day before, for example, that, that baby that the soldier was holding, you know, his, the, par- the parents were, were shot in, in their home and several uh-huh. houses were also burnt down. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, I mean, people weren't, weren't joyous but there but there wasn't uh it, it didn't feel tense was that was that your, was that your first trip to Anlong Bang yeah absolutely I wasn't even in graduate school at that point this is before graduate school how did so, so yeah so how did that how did that happen you're on a helicopter we missed a few steps yeah well so as I as I mentioned I well I had been working in Cambodia and I I'd been to Cambodia Cambodia at that point, that was my my second time in Cambodia. I worked in Cambodia in 94, about a year, and okay. then I was back in 97, 98, uh, working again. And um, and it was at the tail end of my my stay there, and the election was happening. And um, I actually, that was 97. So at that point, actually, I had already um, had volunteered, though, the previous summer on the Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale. So I had... I had some background with um, Cambodian Cambodian studies. I just wasn't in graduate school yet, and um, and my partner worked in the media. And, and actually, there was a an Damian Kingsbury actually suggested, "Well, you know, the two of you between, you know, <laughs> maybe you should go out and document the elections." And we're like, "You know what? Why not?" <laughs> At the time, we had somebody come for part of those trips as a as a in as different people actually to help interpret on some of these trips. Um, but we went around and went to all over Cambodia, the provinces, interviewing people, interviewing. So your kind of official capacity was doing some election documentation was the. Yeah. Yeah. But we were, we were freelancing. We weren't working for anyone at the time. Um, you know, we were just doing this on our own and we later, you know, told some of the footage and stuff that we took and, and gave over some of the, yeah. the, the stuff. We ended up documenting stuff actually that didn't have to do with election as, as well. There were some human rights issues that we came across and, turned all of that over to the human rights groups. Um, but yeah, that's how we ended up. And we were in Siem Reap and, and we decided to, to see if we could go to Anlong Bang. And after much back and forth with the powers that be in Siem Reap, we eventually were allowed to go on this flight um, up there. And we, you know, the situation was all unfolding at the time. So we didn't really realize till pretty close up to the time what exactly we were getting into. We just thought we were going to go up there and <laughs> and interview, like, see if people voted or not, you know? Right. <laughs> we didn't, weren't expecting, you know, you know, to be uh, picking medical up. Medical evacuation um, or. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, so that was a bit of a surprise at the time. But one thing was very clear was this was a real, a real turning point. It, it really did seem like a last ditch effort on Tomok's part to have some kind of impact and it was also clear that there was the the idea of voting and everything and, and how it was set up in Enlong Bang, it was wasn't fully there yet, but it was getting there. If, you know, there was a handful of people that that may have voted, but a lot of people weren't even registered properly. The or some people didn't understand what was going on exactly with the voting. Um it wasn't that well organized up there. So, so um, maybe maybe it's it's good to to say a bit about um you 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 brought up um Tom Oak. Um, but, uh, uh, so fill in, Tomok is a senior, um, Khmer Rouge leader of the national army. Um, so what interesting thing with Tomok is Tomok was actually in my field, in Kampong school very, very early on in the early, in the early seventies. And then he, then oh. he was the head of the Southwest. He was known as the butcher. He was a really yeah. harsh, cruel commander and had a, you know, a really 
bad reputation as far as that goes. And what's interesting about him is that his rep is that his image sort of changes over time. So in the hardcore Khmer Rouge years of the of Democratic Kampuchea and in the and in the Civil War years as well, he was absolutely brutal and known for that. And then later, the sort of commander he becomes in Anne Long Vang, his followers have a very different version of the kind of man he was. You know, they say he's, you know, this benevolent, uh um kind leader, you know, who's, yeah. who's, you know, just a really different image of the, of the, the, the Tomok I heard about. Is that, is that the pit, right? Isn't that where didn't, didn't like Nate Thayer when he's interviewing, doesn't like, doesn't like Tomok one of the one who's like sort of infamously like laughing at like the, well, it wasn't that many people and they were mostly Vietnamese that we killed, not, um, not, not, yeah, very, was- not particularly repentant, I would say. He was very anti-Vietnamese, and that's that's one thing that that the the people up in An Long Wing talk about is how you know everything was explained by you know that, that you know very similar actually in some ways to mm-hmm. to Pol Pot that all the problems are are due to the enemies, but among the enemy there was one enemy, and the enemy the enemy is the Vietnamese. So everything that goes wrong, it's because of them, right. and um, so a lot of anti-Vietnamese sentiment there. And they believed him, you know, for a period of time. They thought they were in danger, you know, because of the Vietnamese. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's an, he's an interesting character. You know, he's not one of the Khmer Rouge that went off to Paris and to study or anything like that. So, you know, um, a very different, a very different background and um, very devoted to, to the cause. <laughs> right, right. True believer. So a, a lot of your, um, I mean, Tomok plays a particular role in the, um, that would become the Yamal statue. But uh, I guess for, for our listeners, um, a lot of your, your, your discussion of kind of in this case of guardian spirit, tra- soldier to guardian spirit, you know, transformation, enchantment, reintegration revolves around uh, a statue. Do, do we know that Tomok probably commissioned it of uh, Khmer Rouge soldiers, right? This is what part of what your research, what is originally carved out of rock is these, uh, is the, these statues of patriotic soldiers, men and women. Is that right? Right. That's absolutely right. And he commissioned the carving of the soldiers and the, he, he had, he was very industrious in many ways. And he had the school built, he had a bridge built, did a number of different projects, and this is one of those projects. But he did this as sort of a dedication to those men and women who fought, you know, for him and with him to defend this area and their way of life. And uh, when, when do we when do we think that was first built? Nineties around nineteen ninety five. Okay, so so it's this. Uh, it's uh, maybe just maybe describe it visually, kind of how like so, how big right, and what we're we right. talking about. There's a road that goes, um, and in a, you know what that road exactly looked like back then. It, it may have been, my guess is it was more minimal than it is now. It go, travels from the plains up, 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 you know, went through the forest and then up the mountain towards the border. And along that road, there's a there's this spot where there is this very large boulder. Um, it's now on a peninsula, but I believe looking at some of the older photos that look like the road went next to that site before. And in the boulder, and I, you know, it's, it's funny. At one point I did see, uh, and even I, I showed you the couple earlier photos of what the, the monument looked like, but I saw before that somewhere and I couldn't find it an even earlier image. And the, you know, the Khmer Rouge who carved those statues and there's four of them, there's three males and one female, and, the, and one one male's on the side of the boulder, and then the other two males and the female are on the front of the boulder. It's a very large boulder. And they weren't carved fully detached from the boulder. They're sort of, you know, they, they carved... Kind of um, coming out of the boulder or part Coming of the... out of the boulder, yeah. And uh, some to greater or lesser extent. Um, and they... Um, and over time, what happened is that the statues were were damaged and it said that the Cambodian army even like blew off the heads of some of the soldiers. Were, stuff, were you able but... to see that statue in your 98 visit? No, because we, we 
I, I, you I know, guess I you, were, you, were there, you were you were helicopters. You were you were driving a helicopter. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, would have we would. I don't think who knows if you would admit it or not. What I think it was was not really very safe to go by by road at that time. Um, but you know, yeah, and the the trip, you know, the roads that are there now are quite good, but they weren't also at the time. So, so it's an originally purpose by the by by Tomok Khmer Rouge as a memorial to to these patriotic soldiers and um, you know protecting the the high ground maybe or is can we do we know enough to yeah protecting the the Anlong Bank settlement which included the yeah. your town area that whole area around there's a lake up there at the, around the lake and then up the ridge you know to the border so it's there's a few little um, there's the town and there's a few little villages and stuff around there little hamlets um, so yeah, protecting that area, the, the, the homeland and, um, right. So it, it was, you know, interesting, like, you know, in, for, uh, for, um, someone like, like Tom Mok, it would have not been conceived as a, as a religious site, but as a patriotic, um, you know, uh, remind, what, what, I mean, if you had to guess what, what would he hope that that, um, statue would, would drum up and cause? I think it was a couple things. I think it was one a claim on that area, you know, you're planting a school, you're planting a statue, you're planting. Yeah. Right. We're not just ragtag rebels hiding in the, the woods where we're here. Like, right. No, he's create, he's creating, you know, really their own society, but yeah. you know, and you know, a hospital school, different, you know, the, all the different things. And, and part of that establishing of a society is creating the sort of historical memory of that society. And, you know, and in keeping with the idea that it's about the people, not about the leaders, you know, you read um, everything is the people's movement, you know, the people's uh, um, putting, make, creating the soldiers fits with that rather than just making a statue of himself, you know, which would be made a statue of himself. That's a very different type of meaning than creating a statue of the soldiers. Yeah. Uh, who are the people who are defending their own land. So I think it lifted, you know, I think it's, you know, lifted their morale, you know, and, um, and get by giving, you know, by giving them recognition because, you know, they didn't have it easy. <laughs> they lived in, you know, they had it extremely, I mean, li- we're living in very difficult circumstances, you know, especially having to, you know, every time they're attacked, having to pack up and run over the border and, you know, being at, at war for for years and with, you know, limited provisions at times, um, that it's a tough life. Yeah. And um, so I think that that was one of the purposes, but it's also just sort of establishing that area as belonging to, you know, the Khmerers, but particularly Tom Mock's Khmerers. So there's, you know, there was a lot of splits at that time in the late 90s between the Khmerers themselves. And don't forget that that Tomok had Pol Pot there under house arrest before Pol Pot died and tried him for genocide. (laughs) So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting background of what's going on there. And that was, you know, and Pol Pot right before that had Don Sun killed and his family killed and then they ran over them with a truck. So that was, you know, these were all people who were part of the original regime. And, you know, you had Ian Suri defecting with his troops, you know, in 96. So there's all these these splits that are occurring, these fr- you know, between the melting different... Melting away, yeah. Melting away. So Tomok's, the troops that are loyal to him, they're Tomok's, and he's sort of establishing that and claiming that area. And so not not long after um, your visit... Uh, that he Tomok is 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 captured um, still in the nineties I think right and then and then goes mm-hmm. on to be charged with uh, crimes against humanity um, and yeah he never made it to the tribunal he died in prison before that right and so so the the um, when does some of what you also talk about is the, the, obviously the it centers around this this monument but also. Um, uh, becoming shrine, but also the the the, the village of Anlongvang. So so, what happens in the in subsequent um, years from from after after the DK is is fully fully evaporating and Anlongvang becomes a uh, a Cambodian town? Um, right, uh, right. So then you you yeah. So what what happens is well, a number of things is that you know it opens up to the rest of Cambodia and the world. And so you get um, 
newcomers who are coming there um, to settle in and try to make their fortune how they can. And uh, does it does also, it open up to to Thailand? I mean, does the how does that opening up manifest itself? Is it mostly internal Cambodian transplants, or are there transnational um, migrants and refugees and visitors that come and? Well, there's, there? there's some visitors. They they built a very large casino up, up there, okay. right near the border. So you have you know Thai coming over the border also to to gamble. So that's attracting that's attracting one set of visitors yes, <laughs> from from yes. from different places. So you've got different things that are attracting different groups of people. So you have on the one hand the fact that it is a um, it's a former Khmer Rouge area. Pol Pot's grave is there. You know, there's Tomox house is there. So on the one hand, it attracts a certain a certain kind of tourism, you know, uh, hmm. people that come, you know, from from other countries, um, you know, who who are visiting Cambodia, who will travel then to An Long Vang to to see these sites. So you have this influx of tourism, and then you also have the influx of people that are coming to gamble. That you know aren't, you know, and both of those groups aren't staying very long, but you know, different people continue to come and go. And then you have the people that are not coming and going that are coming to settle for, for you know, some undetermined period of time. Um, what's the, what's the main, what's the name economy now of Anlong Bang? Um, is the main economy. So people come, you know, they have, people have shops, there's timber, there's, um, uh, other types of, uh, uh, of agriculture that, that, that's grown. Um, um, I think mostly, mostly those types of things. Okay. You know, there's not, there's not any factory or anything like that, that I know of offhand that that's up there, but I think it's more agricultural and, you know, forest timber and, and then just, you know, commerce. Um, so, you know, farming, you know. So at some point after 99, the, um, uh, Anlong Vang gets reclaimed by, uh, Cambodia and, um, but also by um, Cambodians who are not um, Khmer Rouge, and um, they they start to appropriate and to transform um, this this former Tamok statues um, and make it um, a, a, a Ye Mao statue. Maybe what is the who who is Ye Mao and um, uh, and so that we're understanding. Sort of the evolution towards the what we're seeing in 2017 and the present. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so what, first of all, one of the things that when new people came to the area, what one of the things they did was, um, you know, they're bringing their way of life with them. So, you know, they bring with them not only, you know, the, whatever they're themselves and whatever they need to uh, and to build a house and so forth, but they also are bringing with them their beliefs and their religion and, you know, they're building a temple and they're practicing their religion. And so they're bringing other things with them too. So I think that's an important component. So you, the society, the local society, local community is changing. Maybe our, our listeners might, might be interested in um, uh, just very briefly, the kind of what happens to sort of religion and spiritual practice under the Khmer Rouge, um, that kind of makes something like the Yamao um, shrine so so dramatic. What what is what is religion um, like in under the Khmer Rouge? Khmer Rouge ideology, which is essentially you know communist ideology, there there's not really room for religion there. The, the religion under the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s was was not only banned, but it was um, it was attacked, you know, they destroyed the temples. Systematically they, dismantled. Yeah, systematically dismantled. And not just the Buddhist uh, institutions and Islamic and Christian institutions, but they also attacked the local um, yeah. local belief systems. They, 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 for example, in my former field site, they burned down the, um, the shrines for the... Um, and destroyed other shrines of the local guardian spirits and also the things that were... The, mortuary towers that were erected for for um, Reli- religions big and small were sort of enemy to the Khmer Rouge right so um 
Now that doesn't mean exactly <laughs> that they don't that they that every single one of the individuals didn't have any yeah sort of beliefs about those things. But <laughs> but you know that, you don't that you was, don't you don't do ideology. do away with thousands of years of sort of uh, belief and practice in you know in a in a in a few years yeah. Right. Yeah. But they, no one was going around pronouncing it. That's for sure. And, um, so that's sort of the context and, and then Yee Mao, uh, who you asked that. So Yee Mao is this really interesting guardian spirit. And she originated in Kampong Su province, um, in a place called Picknell, which is, which is a hill there. And it's right off of highway four on in between Phnom Penh and Sienaville. And Yee Mao, there's lots of different versions of her story, but in essence, she, uh, in most of the stories, I'll just say that she was married to a commander named Kree, who was fighting the Siamese army at the time. And this takes place either in the 19th or 16th centuries, depending on the version told. Um, and something happens to him. He either disappears or he dies but in any case she goes looking for him and eventually she ends up taking up the sword herself then and takes command of the forces and vanquishes the ties and thereby you know saves cambodia and reclaims the southwest so we think not not just a mythical heroine but but an actual an actual person so from the story, it sounds like there was some actual person that yeah. did some version of this. <laughs> sure. And out of this, out of this tale, you know, it's an oral, it's an oral tale. So, you know, it, it I'm sure evolved to some extent, but um, it's interesting that there, that she was a woman and, and she's credited for, for rescuing, you know, Cambodia from an outside invader, in this case, the Siamese. And, um, because of her, because, and, and I, that's the crucial part of the story really is the fact that she protected then Cambodia because she becomes a protectress spirit as well. So she evolved then into this uh, guardian spirit and there were shrines to her always on, you know, along Picknell in that area and in that general region actually. And uh, eventually a statue was made and, and this and it more and more has been added to it over the years and other Yee Mao statues were built then in other parts of Cambodia. And she essentially offers people stop and make offerings to her in and in with the hopes of receiving, uh, you know, safety along the road, but also, you know, well-being um, more broadly. Yeah, so um, so the 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 Anlong now shrine is is along a, a this this truck route. Um, are, are the other and there are other um, Yemao statues? Are are they also on on tended to be on roads. Um, on roads and on kind of like heavily trafficked areas where? Yeah, I haven't visited the other sites, but it looks to me like the one like on Bokor Mountain does not appear to be on a road. It just appears to be its own thing. However, nonetheless, the road going up to Bokor, you know, it's a windy road up a up a mountain side of a mountain. You know, uh, there are a lot of accidents, so that might be another reason but i i think that because she doesn't only offer protection for road accidents she also provides protection for other types of um hazards and mishaps and accidents um okay you know i i think that she that that matters but it but to, to an extent sort of a, a safety um uh, if you want uh is, is, is it some place that if you were not just if you were passing the stat but if you were about to undertake a journey you might go give an offering like um maybe if it was nearby i mean some of the you know some of it would require quite quite a journey but if not then possibly some you know that could that could happen uh maybe uh to um to get into a little bit of the um the enchanted realm what is its role and why is it significant um especially maybe as a like a medium for negotiating social change what 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 do scholars like yourself and others would, would they think about the function of uh, something like this? What what is the context we should see this in? How do people um, why why are they significant statues like that or um, the, the 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 enchanted realm in general in moments of social change? Right. So it's a really interesting 
topic. And I, you know, I have to say my, my first, uh, encounter, you might say with it in a, in a, in a large sense as pertaining to the social change that occurs with the aftermath of mass violence, it, you know, had to do with my previous field work. A lot of things I was seeing going on, uh, stories that were being told, um, in my field site, but more broadly than that, there's a whole literature in Southeast Asia <laughs> on these types of, on these, uh, on this sort of realm or where, where, for example, um, oh, well, there's lots of examples, but it has been written about, take, for example, you know, as far as rapid social change having to do with modernity, there's like Jane Ferguson's study about how, you know, um, having to, they're on the at airports and on airplanes, how there's a belief that, um, certain spirits can either help or harm uh, a person's safety on, on a flight. And so there are certain um, uh, guardian spirits that, that at the airports and um, sometimes they're in, that are prayed to in order to um, given offerings to so that people will can ensure a safe flight. So, you know, it, it's the, I, the idea that, that modernity and, um, ideas of an, of an enchanted realm where there's magic and so forth, um, often, you know, go hand in hand. I, I see what I see you're saying. So is it, is it that the uncertainties that something like a new modernity or, or, um, sort of pretty dramatic social change present like these, um, the, the spirit world or its reemergence might provide anchors or, or, um, comfort uh, to 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 individuals as they as they're passing into this this <clears throat> brave new world, right? And it's not not just offering comfort. It's 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 more than that. It's it um, it kind of gives like a, a space of of negotiation with these new processes and these you know really um, like it's transactional or well, it, there is a transactional element because you have an opportunity. There's interaction with the spirits. In this regard, and actually the creation, like, for example, I mentioned in the talk, Maurice Eisenbrook's um, study of the factory workers um, in Cambodia, the faintings that were occurring in the factories, that there's also possibilities of, of locating the cause and intervening and making changes. You know, the, the, the appearance of a, of, a, um, of a spirit causing trouble is a, could be a sign of that there is trouble. <laughs> something's okay. not quite yeah. right that's going on <laughs> so you know it can be a number of things it could be it, 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 it can be a, a signal of of things that are that are going wrong and it could be a way of negotiating certain changes it could be a lot of things it's hard to explain they sometimes fully in western terms because i always feel like it somehow is making it all more diminutive than than it is because it's not really a fully transactional functional thing going on uh, it's it's yeah. more than that, but I think the key thing with the enchanted realm and everything that goes with that is it offers potentiality. It's a really potent space for um, eliciting guidance, you know, making sense of things, applying different meanings to things. It's flexible, you know. When there's stories about different moral tales that I, you know, it's like the story of Yay Mal, the tales told about her are not all identical and maybe different versions of the stories are told in different times to meet different needs or that, that more, more closely matches the circumstances, uh, you know, or maybe, you know, it, it, or maybe it doesn't, the, it's just seems like the, the appropriate story at that moment. Um, so it allows for things to be understood and explain, but also very much a, um, a sort of a, a guide of sort, because in these tales, there's often a moral component to them of some sort okay. that, you know, tells, tells people, you know, what, what happens, you know, when people do bad things um, and, you know, what are some of the consequences of that and what happens to people that do good things and what are some of the consequences of that? And, um, and also simply that not things, sometimes things just go wrong, <laughs> you know, bad things just happen in sometimes. Um, and there's lots of Cambodian tales and David Chandler writes, writes about that um, uh, as well, um, that help sort of 
allows someone to sort of manage the the, the memories okay. and the and the sort of and what they're going through with through these changes. So in this in the in the, the transformation of this um, the care mon- monument to um, to Yamao, um, you described initially as you know we have we have a couple soldiers, um, one woman, two two men. Um, carved out of carved out of a boulder um what does uh it looks kind of kind of classic revolutionary kind of you know statuary um what uh what about the the yamao as as it would evolve how does she look that how do the other soldiers look give us a um give us a word picture of what you see now at that um at that site well, now it's it's interesting because you know, you have the three male soldiers, uh, and none of them have head or limbs really anymore. And the um, do you think that was retaliatory? Well, yeah, I think I think I mean that was really very uh, that, that takes a lot of effort, <laughs> or it takes explosives or something. That's not like graffiti or something like that. That. That was a concerted effort to to do that, and it seems like it was done a little bit over time too, because you see some different pictures, and unfortunately, there's not a ton of pictures. Um, you do see a little bit of progression there, you know, where the one soldier in the photo that I took, you see it sort of sitting sort of towards the front of the shrine, totally disconnected from the boulder. Well, that wasn't the case before. You look at the earlier photo photos, and it Someone was connected before the, that. Yeah. Someone detached it, but I think it didn't, you know, it may not have happened all at once. Um, okay. So there's a sort of evolution taking place with this, with this, with the statues shifting a bit. And, and, you know, and this statue of the female soldier really changes over time differently than the male statues and that one, she keeps her, no one removes her head, although one of her arms is missing. The other key, but her face is heavily damaged nonetheless. She's really, you know, it, there's, it's really rubbed out uh, with chiseled out um, by the looks of it. And the, the other thing about her is that at one point where she would have had carved onto her the uniform, the uniform was removed to some extent. The, the, mil- the military suggest- uniform? Yes, the military. There's a, there's a suggestion that of it being removed because someone added a belly button to her belly, and it looks like some yeah. of the... Right. the um, some of the uh, you like can't have a uniform button. on if you have a belly button, yeah. Right, so that's 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 kind of interesting. It's kind of you know one of those parts of the transformation that takes place, and that's the you know she's in that form. Then later, you know, when she is transformed later into Yee Mao, um, so then she's dressed after that in actual clothing. <laughs> so. Yeah, so so it so it appears um, so so it's obviously. Um, taken care of like the, so these are these are real textile clothing that are that are put on on gay Mao um, uh, memories are white top and red red bottom red skirt is that what yeah and it changes over time it's not consistent she's wearing in the, the in some pictures different pictures I found she's not always wearing the identical clothes so they 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 and I don't know why that's the case whether it's a case that Somebody just decides that it's time for her to wear something else, or if it's a case that somehow the other clothes were damaged, you know, maybe even intentionally by, Do we know by who's, someone. Who's curating this? Care the newcomers. They said that the the people that live in the area there. Okay. Um, and the the other thing that they did was they built in front of the boulder. You know, they put in a like a platform um, with some kind of. I don't know if it's linoleum or what it's made of exactly. Some kind of surface on it, flooring surface, uh, okay. so that people. So there's a little. So there's a few steps, and people can go and and an, and an awning and kind of a. I didn't see an awning uh, oh. when I was there. Oh, uh, there may... one, one of the pictures, maybe, maybe just in the background, maybe there looks like a. Um, maybe that's not an awning over it, but a. But yeah, but so they, yeah, so they, so yeah. they've, maybe, they've, maybe there is actually, I would have to go back and look. You maybe you're right. You know, it's funny. You remember things certain ways and, um, but yeah, so it's been, it's sort of been built up the whole sort of, not just the boulder itself, but the area around it into, uh, into a shrine where people can come. There's a place they can leave their offerings 
you know, they can sit uh, and um, and there's a room for for not a ton of people, but, you know, quite a few people. I mean, not there's just as much room there as there is at the original EAML statue, maybe even a little more. How about the um, the the male statues? How are they um, transformed and reintegrated? Well, they weren't for mostly. There's there's only that one interesting. When I visited, what was very interesting um, was that the male soldier, one of the male soldiers only, was wearing a scarf, and the scarf was not a Khmer Rouge scarf, but it was a scarf that's made of fabric that's used for clothes for monks, oh. and same kind of color. And and those familiar with um, the ordaining of trees that monks have both started in Thailand and also they do it in Cambodia, where they monks will ordain a tree by tying a sash around the tree to protect it. So this is a, now a, you know, a, sort of a holy tree in a sense, um, sacred tree you can't, so it won't be cut down. And so this, this scarf was put around the neck, which sort of places it, <laughs> it would seem in a similar category, only I don't know who put the scarf on. In any case, it seems like it didn't last. <laughs> it wasn't always there when when DA Mao was when the statue female statue was transformed to DA Mao and she went with the, they put the clothing on her. Earlier the, at that same time, you see photos where the male statue is not wearing the scarf, but and and then there's a picture I took in 2017, and then there's a more recent picture where you don't see um, the soldier wearing. The scarf so obviously somebody removed it um and didn't feel it was appropriate i guess yeah, um, the, 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 fo the focus seems to be on the yay mount the, the 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 female figure though right that seems to be the the current center of attention is the she's got she's got a really interesting sort of like bright lipstick and and, and glasses sunglasses or or kind of um, yeah sunglasses yeah she's a very striking figure very colorful very striking but in the meantime and i didn't mention this in the talk because it was just too much to add at, at the time but then, since then there's been another statue added another female statue that's not doesn't yeah. appear to be EAL. and i tried to find out who the statue was yes you know wrote and sent the photo to several you know people in cambodia and nobody knew for sure who the statue was but there's a new statue that's a little bit in front of Yea Mao. Now, Yea Mao is still there and still dressed and everything, but there's also this new statue. And um, there's not only that new statue there, but I also didn't mention that across the road, there's also a set, another set of statues. Uh, one uh, statue, that one is uh, Takar Homka, which is a, means grandfather redneck. Um, and um, so there's also that set of statues which is a complete different set of statues, but basically you can see that this site as a whole is becoming the shrine and it's sort yeah. of being a, a sacred site is growing. <laughs> and as it, as it grows, it's getting new statues, but the male Khmeru statues are not being included in that. They're allowed to remain, but they're not being fully included. That's interesting. And do the uh, Ye Mao statues that are elsewhere in, in Cambodia, is she dressed similarly to the, the one in... Um... Anongbang? Yeah, they, well, they look similar and different at the same time. I mean, none of them are, I mean, all of them were made to be Yeamao. This is a fundamental difference that they didn't start off being something else. That's what they were made to be. Okay. Uh, so, so this one is unique them, in that way, yeah. This one's very unique in that way, yeah. And um, so that makes them immediately look different. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so, but you think yeah, did, did this did, did this Yamao like they they're they're interested in trying to remake it into those ones that were originally have always been Yamaos or which came first? I guess the chicken chicken or egg question. I think that they had you know an idea of what Yamao or you know and what a guardian yeah. spirit female guardian spirit might look like, and you know incorporated various elements of that. It's interesting. I think the glasses part of it that may, I may, that might have just been a practical move on their part to, because she doesn't have any eyes. I suppose they could have tried to, paint I guess when you eyes. think about it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's an easy <laughs> workaround. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it could be that, or it could be that they wanted her to look particularly modern. Um, yeah. Do the I, other ones I, have I'm glasses, really sure. or just just this one? No, I've had, no, none of the others have glasses. Okay, so yeah. you know, you. So that's really you know a, a key difference. But then again, none of them you know they were all yes. built you know to look a certain way. So. So so, um, may, so maybe a, a last question is that this is not this is not isolated to um, just this. The, the, how how is this phenomenon being played out elsewhere? Like you, you brought up an interesting um, sort of Hun Sen's memorialization, uh, memorialization of uh, sort of conflation of of historical and contemporary figures. Like uh, say say a bit about this other manifest, these other manifestations of a kind of similar reimagining. Oh right, yeah, yeah. So I I think it's really interesting what what going on in Cambodia now as far as Hun Sen goes that he's building all these statues and memorials to himself and his legacy all over Cambodia and he also you know at the same time built that memorial to um to Dai Khan who is the 14th century king that was a, a peasant origins um and put his face to look somewhat like Hun Sen suggesting that there was a connection there um so there's a few things going on with with that, and I think that um, one thing Hansen's trying to do by putting these statues everywhere is by is establishing his legacy. Um, and um, it's interesting because he's making you know this is more about him than it's about his forces or his people, if you will, it, 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 that the soldiers that that have fought for him. And um, because, you know, while they show up in some of the images, it's, it's, it's clearly about him and his successes. And he's very much, you know, um, this has been a big project of his to sort of construct the past in a particular, in a particular manner that tells a particular narrative of, uh, of how successful he's been and how if it wasn't for him, you know, uh, the Khmer Rouge may still be in power, that he's the the source of um, ultimately, you know, bringing the Khmer Rouge, you know, into into Cambodian society and having them defect and and join and no longer, you know, and end the civil war. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's he's interesting. I even heard that they're. Yeah. Yeah, but I heard that he's recently putting up another one, another monument near a EA Mal site somewhere in the southwest as well, which is interesting. There's, you know, he has, you know, the kings in, in Cambodia are normally said to have a certain amount of power. Uh, their power has a certain amount of, they have a certain amount of potency, you know, that, uh -huh. that just exists since they're kings. And I think that in many ways that he... He wants to have that too. He wants people to believe that he's also right. He's a, a world. He's a, a world. Potent power. He's a world turner as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Astrid uh, Nora Nilsson has a has a good article about as far as the part about this tonight con business of his about the statue that he he built. Um. And the story of that, so I would suggest if anyone's interested sure. in that, that they read her. her well, that's a that's a good transition in, into some uh, into maybe the last part of our interview, which is some pl some plugs here. Um, I, you know, I brought up the the Yale genocide studies, um, which you're a board member of. What what are what are some other um, places, causes, uh, work you're up you're up to that uh, our listeners should know about? Okay, great. So yeah. Um, it's the Yale Genocide Studies Program. Um, also, you know, I'm on the board for the um, Center for Khmer Studies. And so anybody who's interested in studying about Cambodia or if there's, um, it's a great resource. Shout out to CKS. They've been great, great partners for NIU and Cambodian Studies in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, you know, fellowship programs, the junior fellowship. We have programs for undergraduates, dissertation um, uh, candidates and also for uh, people who already have their PhDs. So there's a variety of programs there. And there's also funding for uh, in the same categories uh, for Cambodians in Cambodia as well. 
and also for, for, for French students. So um, there's a lot of opportunity there. And plus we run a lot of other programming. Um, we have various workshops and speakers and uh, a fantastic library, which is a great resource. And um, it's increasingly becoming, you know, digitized bit by bit. And um, and if anyone visits Cambodia, they, I would definitely suggest that they they pay a visit. Um, great group of people that work there, and and it's a great. And I was uh, myself a a CKS fellow. I did. I had my dissertation fellowship from there and a senior fellowship there. And at the time, I had my dissertation fellowship. You know, it, they really funded my my research. There wasn't at that time. Yeah very many of other available sources. And it was a great experience because it also put me in this network sort of with other scholars. And that was hugely helpful and, and enjoyable. Um, so yeah, the other organization I'm involved with is in New York Southeast Asia Network, which now, especially in the times of COVID, extends well beyond the greater New York region. Um, and that uh, an effort to, you know, keep Southeast Asian studies going, put scholars and students and other interested parties in contact with one another and, and um, share what's going on. And so there's a lot of programming coming out of that and, and, and New, York Southeast, New York Southeast Asian Network regularly puts on, at the, you know, uh, and putting on a number of webinars and and if anyone's interested, um, I guess if they if they Google that, we can hit their website. Yeah, ny uh, it's nysean.org, New York Southeast Asia Network. Um, yeah, so anyone can Google that. Um, so what else? Um, well, those are the three main organizations. You're, 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 you had to get some, you had some, you had some books. Right. So out. I just had one book just come out um, in July, and that's not exactly. It's not mostly so focused on Southeast Asia, but um, it does have a, a chapter in there. And that book is called "Memory and Mass Violence in the Digital Age: Memorialization Unmoored," and it was edited by myself and David Simon, who's the chair of the. Uh, the, who's the director of the genocide studies program at Yale. And so it's a really different type of topic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually a topic that I've gotten very into. And I, I've been doing some research also in Cambodia on, on, on this topic, but I, I don't have a chapter in that book. Oh, I, we did the introduction and conclusion together, but I don't have a chapter specifically um, on Cambodia in, in that book. Um, but then I have, coming out in well any month any any week now <laughs> another book which was co-edited with laura mcgrew um that one's the university of michigan press book called coexistence in the aftermath of mass violence imagination empathy and resilience and that also covers cases in several parts of the world but there happens to be three chapters on cambodia in that volume um and then the third volume that won't be out for some time is being co-edited by myself and Ben Kiernan. And that book is um, Political Violence in Southeast Asia Since 1945. Um, oh, and that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah six, covers six different countries in Southeast Asia, and there's 17 chapters in that uh in that volume and that comes from a conference we did uh was it a year ago or so um on that on that topic so that one's that one's a little further behind than than the than the other two but it it should be coming out um as well so those are the the main those are the main things i'm working on at the moment well eve uh, i can't thank you enough for uh spending time with us and uh Will you will you come back again when we can uh, see you on our campus and interact with you and our well, students? Well, I would love to. I, I can't tell you how disappointed I was not to be able not to be able to to come because I was really looking forward. It's been such a long time since I've been to the NIU campus. You know, it's been since um, I was in graduate student graduate student at University of Wisconsin. In fact, I had just started graduate school at that time, and it, it was great student conference, the Southeast Asia Student Conference. I participated in then yeah. it might have been we still do it might, every year 
Yeah, it's it's great. I would highly recommend it to uh, anybody who's a student who can make it that area. It's a, it's a great experience. Um, so, yeah. Well, wonderful. Well, um, stay safe and sound, and we'll uh, talk again uh, soon, Eve. Thanks so much. Well, thank you.